I want to read to you from 1 Samuel chapter 16, starting at verse 1. And the Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve or mourn over Saul, since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. And Samuel said, How can I go? If Saul hears about it, he will kill me. And the Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, I've come to sacrifice to the Lord and invite Jesse to the sacrifice and I will show you what you shall do. And you shall anoint for me him whom I declare to you. Samuel did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem. The elders of the city came to meet him trembling and said, do you come peaceably? And he said, peaceably. I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they came, he looked on Eliab and thought, and some versions say he said, whatever, everybody could tell what was on Samuel's mind, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, mm -mm, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I've rejected him. For the Lord does not look as man does. He sees man, he looks on the, man sees on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and had him pass before Samuel. And the Lord said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse had Shammah pass by. And he said, the Lord has not chosen this one. And then Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Jesse, before Samuel. Then Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord has not chosen these. And Samuel said to Jesse, are these all your sons? And he said, well, there remains the youngest, but He's, he's keeping the sheep. You don't want him. Samuel said to Jesse, send and get him, for we will not sit down till he comes here. And he sent and brought him in. Now, he was ruddy and had, a, had beautiful eyes and was handsome. The Lord said, that's the one, arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the oil 
and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord came upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. And then there's one other verse I want just to read. It's Romans chapter 12, verse 3. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, do not think of himself. Let no one think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has given him. Well, may God be pleased to bless the reading and the preaching of this is most holy and infallible word. Brief word of prayer. Most wise and gracious Heavenly Father, we turn to you. I pray now for the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus by your spirit to rest upon every person in this room in order that their perception of what I say will be heard, received as you intend. Cleanse my tongue that I will be your transparent instrument to say what needs to be said, nothing that doesn't need to be said. Help me to be clear, simple, and I ask that this will be life-changing and a word that brings great honor and glory to your name. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. I want to begin the series today by focusing on the anointing. And we're going to do it with regard to what I see as yesterday's man, and then what I see as today's man, and tomorrow's man. We have three possibilities put here in this verse. And so there are three kinds of people here today. You could be yesterday's man or woman. I hope not. But theoretically, you could be. Then I would think all of you are today's men and women. I would think so. And it could be that there's some here that your time has not come and you are tomorrow's man or woman. And I think it is possible to have a mixture. You could be today's man and tomorrow's man. Now, we're not talking about age. We're not talking about retirement or being made redundant. But what you have in verse 1, the Lord said to Samuel, how long will you grieve over Saul? Yesterday's man, even though Saul was only 40, I call that young, even though he was only 40 and would live another 20 years, he was yesterday's man. And what we need to see is that you can be alive and be yesterday's man. That means that you have been rejected. The anointing has been taken from you. And yet you can go right on as though nothing happened. Even though King Saul wore the crown, 
and had the following, had the adulation, had the power. According to God, he was just in his man. He clearly, I've rejected him as king. And so he says to Samuel, a type of today's man, go, take your oil and go to the house of Jesse. I've anointed one of his sons to be king. Samuel, a type of today's man. And what typifies today's man is that you have to go outside your comfort zone. And you have to continue to go outside your comfort zone. You may say, well, I've done that. And you think you don't have to do it again. Here's Samuel, an old man, a legend in his time. You would have thought that God would turn to somebody else. So Samuel done a good job for me. I'm proud of you. You could retire. You could go uh, to Florida and rest and lay on the beach. But no, here's Samuel, who's already tired and old, and he's told to do something, and it scares the life out of him. He says, listen, if, if, if I get caught, I'll be killed. Don't worry, I'll take care of you, says God. And it could be there's someone here. You've sort of paid your dues. You've kept obedient. You think I've done what God told me to do. Uh, and now I can relax. I remember at Westminster Chapel, uh, I did something that was, at the time, very controversial. I uh, invited Arthur Blessed to come to Westminster Chapel. Uh, some of you will know about him. He's now in his early 80s. Uh, he's not well. I expect to hear any day that he's gone to heaven. Uh, but I had him when he was in his prime. And he's the man that uh, was one of the followers, uh, or rather, I should say, leaders. He was a follower of Jesus, and he followed what became the Jesus movement. And uh, back in the 60s, uh, he erected uh, a cross. Uh, he said the Lord told him to make a wooden cross, and he found a place in Sunset Strip called it his place. And he nailed the cross on the wall uh, so that people who would come in would understand why they're only getting coffee or orange juice. They'd see that cross. Arthur since said, if I knew I was going to have to carry it one day, I wouldn't have made it so big. <laughs> but one day, God says, take the cross down and carry it on foot around the world. People sincerely and literally thought he had lost his mind. And uh, I could say a lot more, except to say Arthur did that. He carries the cross across America. He decides to go on Christmas Day, I believe the year was 1966. Uh, a week before, he starts to carry the cross. He's put in the hospital with an aneurysm in his brain. And the doctor said, don't move. You could die any second. Arthur said, are you saying to me that at any minute I could die and be with Jesus? Glory to God. <laughs> and on Christmas Day, he checked himself out of the hospital. 
and became a legend in his time. He didn't expect this, but he got the Guinness Book of Records for the world's longest walk, over 46,000 miles around the world once and half again. And uh, he has met heads of state. He's been sought after by prominent people. It's because of him that I eventually got to know Yasser Arafat and became Arafat's friend. And uh, Arthur was given the Sinai Peace Medal, uh, stayed in Prime Minister Begin's home, and uh, became a legend in his time. Well, I invited Arthur Blessed to Westminster Chapel. He turned us upside down. I nearly lost my job. The greatest trial of my life, it lasted four years, when half of our deacons tried to get me fired. Uh, you talk about going outside your comfort zone, I did it. After four years, we won. The church made the deacons resign that were against me, and I managed to stay for 25 years. The reason I'm telling you that is that after the trial was over, and I'd been there then about 12 years or so. I thought, never again will I take any more chances. I have proved that I would do it. I don't have to prove anymore. And in heaven, the angel said, really? <laughs> and would you believe, after a year or two, I had to do something that was even more controversial than having Arthur. And then after that, something even more controversial, like having Rodney Howard Brown. I had Rodney Howard Brown two weeks before our retirement. He could have messed us up and caused me to live in infamy because of the type of ministry that he's got. Uh, but I had Rodney. And I could say more about that. The point I'm making is this. You may feel that you have proved yourself and you don't have to do anything more. You, you, and that was the way it was with Samuel. And now here he's kind of called out of retirement. And this is what you're required to do. Anoint uh, your horn with oil and go to the house of Bethlehem. Uh, house of Bethlehemite. And I've anointed one of his sons to be king. All right, a type of today's man. But then we come to Samuel's choice. And it's the one no one expected. As soon as Samuel arrives, he sees Eliab and says, oh, good, this is easy. Job done. Uh, and uh, Jesse was pleased because Eliab was the firstborn. And it was natural for Samuel to think it would be the firstborn because in an ancient Israel, the firstborn got double the inheritance. And uh, so it was, it, was all, it was a done deal. And then about that time, God said, whoa, I didn't tell you to say that. Now, I don't mean to be unfair, but if Samuel were like so many prophetic people today, who's already declared, thus saith the Lord, uh, they will not admit they made a mistake. And this is the genius of Samuel. He made it apparent that, that Eliab was the man, and then God said, sorry, that's your idea. That's not mine. And in front of everybody, in front of everybody, this is 
brilliance of Samuel. He says to Jesse, I'm sorry, it's not going to be Eliab. And it has to go after the one God wanted. So you have a similar thing with Nathan. Nathan the prophet with David. Nathan told David, you can build the temple. That's what David wanted more than anything in the world, to get to build the temple. He says, God is with you. Go for it. And David said, oh, good, I get to build the temple. And when Nathan gets home, God says, I didn't tell you to say that. Now, Nathan could have said, well, I'm not going to hurt my reputation. I said God would do it. This is the humility of a true prophet. And I would say to you, I don't know how many of you feel that you have a prophetic gift. I'm not here to find out. I only say this to you. The gifts and calling of God are without repentance. There's a sense in which a gift stays with you, but then you can get it wrong. The proof whether you are a man of God and a man or woman of integrity is that you'll admit if you made a mistake. And that's what Nathan did. And he had to go back to David, said, I messed up. I, got a, I ran ahead of God. Sorry, David, you won't get to build the temple. And David was fine. In fact, he just sat before the Lord and said, who am I that you would choose me? You might like to know that that passage where David sits before the Lord and says, who am I that you've brought me safe thus far? Here's a little detour, a side story that might interest you. John Newton, the hymn writer, would write a hymn, a new hymn, every week based upon his Sunday night text. And one week, John Newton was looking at this verse where David said, who am I that you brought me thus far? And John Newton was so gripped that he wrote just the hymn of the week. It goes like this. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. In the third verse, tis grace that brought me safe thus far. That's where he got it. It just shows how when one is trying to be led by the Lord, Zechariah 4.10, who's despised the day of small things? David, uh, sorry, John Newton could not have known that just by that little word, he was going to write probably, probably the greatest hymn of all time. And it could be you are seeing something. There's nothing significant about it as far as you can tell. Who's despised the day of small things? And it could be the most insignificant moment can turn out to be a life-changing moment. Well, here's the thing. Samuel says to Jesse, sorry, it's not going to be Eliab. And so Jesse brings Shammah, then Abinadab. And by this time, I think Samuel begins to think, I've lost my prophetic gift. Uh, and he brings all of them. In fact, Jesse says, don't worry, we got a bunch of them, <laughs> one by one. And Samuel says, I don't believe anyone is the anointed. 
maybe I've made a mistake. Are, are these all your sons? Oh, says Jesse, we've got one more. <laughs> you don't want him. Samuel says, get him. And the least likely person of the family is chosen. And, and what is interesting is that David was not even invited to meet the great Samuel. Samuel's coming to dinner. The great Samuel coming to the house of Jesse. And David is not even notified. He's brought in out from being with the sheep. He doesn't even know what's going on. What's this? What am I here for? And what he couldn't have known, that God had his hand on him. And you may feel that nobody knows about you. You've been left out. You've been pushed behind the door. You hear about a great service. And they say, you should have been in church. Holy Ghost came down. And you think, oh, I must not matter to God. I wasn't even there. David, not even invited by his father to come to meet Samuel. You see, you may feel that way. You could be tomorrow's man. And you think nobody knows about me. I don't have the credentials. I don't have the recommendations. I'm not connected. But God knows where you are. And he will find you. And sometimes the least likely person, the last person you would have thought of to be the next figure that God would use. And so, David, not even knowing what's going on, he finds himself oil poured on his head, but we're told from that moment, the Spirit of God came upon David. Now, if only Samuel had said, David, uh, you're the next king, but I've got to tell you something, it will be another 20 years before you're going to wear the crown. Oh, thanks a lot. Just because you've got the anointing, that doesn't mean you're ready. David's anointing had to be refined. And so for the next 20 years, he's going to be in preparation. And what kind of preparation do you think it was? He goes to university? Nope. Seminary? Nope. Get a job on the side, learn how to handle money, be a businessman? Nope. David's case, you're going to spend the next 20 years running from King Saul to stay alive. <laughs> but that's your preparation. And David would say, well, thanks a lot. <laughs> but God has a preparation tailor-made for each of us. I'm speaking to people today. I would like to think that you are all tomorrow's men. You may be today's, but I'm here for a purpose. And God has a plan for everyone as though there were no one else. So you've got here three people or three types, three categories. You've got yesterday's man, today's man, Tomorrow's man. Interesting contrast between yesterday's man and tomorrow's man. Yesterday's man still wore the crown, but lost the anointing. 
to Mars man was given the anointing, but he's got no crown. And so tomorrow's man, he's got no authority, he's got no power, he's got no apparent gifting, but he's got the anointing. Now one may think, oh, I've got the anointing, I'm ready. And it could be someone here, you've been given an anointing of the Spirit, you say, well, why is God being so slow? I don't know. But which would you rather have? The crown without the anointing or the anointing without the crown? King Saul had the crown. He had what I think a lot of people have today in leadership. I don't mean to be unfair, but there are those prominent, well-known, famous people. They've got the following. They've got the mailing list. They've got the adulation. And people just think, oh, they're wonderful. But they've lost the anointing. And nobody knows it. Only Samuel knew Saul was yesterday's man. But then there are those. They don't have a crown. They don't have a mailing list. They're not well connected. But God says, I'm for you. I'm with you. Victor Hugo, the French poet, said, like the trampling of a mighty army, so is the force of an idea whose time has come. And I'd paraphrase that. Like the trampling of a mighty army, so is the force of one's anointing whose time has come. And so your anointing is being shaped, refined. And I would say all of you, I'll say it again, you're tomorrow's men and women. Waiting can be the most painful thing of all. Now, when it comes to anointing, I would define it like this. The power of the Spirit that enables your gift to function with ease. If you stay within your anointing, it's easy. Easy. I've admired people over the years. How did they do that? I can remember a well-known prophetic man. I talk about him in my book, Prophetic Integrity. I mentioned his name. I don't think I will right now, but all of you would know him very well. And I used to watch him. I think, how does he do that? How does he say something? But it's easy for him. I think, Lord, why can't I have that? And the Lord would just say, shut up. <laughs> I've got you for this. Yeah, <laughs> and I think, why can't I have that gift or that level? You see, this is why I read Romans 12, verse 3. You accept the measure of your faith. The word measure means limit. It's the same exact Greek word where in John 4, 34, John the Baptist referred to Jesus 
as having the Spirit without limit. See, the Holy Spirit had all of God that there is. There's no limit to the measure of the Spirit Jesus had. But with you and me, there is a, a limit. You don't have all of God there is. And you have what call, Paul calls, Romans 12, 3, a measure of faith, a limit. Now, you may not be happy with your measure, your limit. And you look over your shoulder and think, why can't I be like him? It's like when Jesus said to Peter, here's the way you're going to die. And the whole time, Jesus was telling Peter how he would die, John 21. Peter was thinking about John. What about John? Jesus said, shut up. It's none of your business. You just follow me. What if I, what if I let him just stay till I come back? You just follow me. And so it could be that there's somebody here. Wouldn't be surprising. You think, I don't know what I've got to offer. I can't do this. I can't do that. I can't do that. But you've got something. It's a measure. And you think, oh, is that all I've got? But if you can brighten the corner where you are and accept what you've got, uh, the day will come. The day will come that God will use that gift. You take Joseph, the son of Jacob. He was a spoilt teenager. Jacob was a lousy parent. He showed favoritism. Parents should never do that. But he was favoritism he, uh, personified. He said, Joseph was all there was as far as Jacob is concerned made him that coat of many colors. And uh, then Joseph, on top of that, had a prophetic gift of dreams. And you think, my goodness, that's not fair. Joseph's got everything. Now he even has a prophetic gift. But God does that. None of us deserve what we have. But you say, well, what kind of gift is that? Interpreting dreams. Uh, and maybe your gift is so minute and so remote and so ordinary and you think well I know I do have one ability so suppose Joseph were to come into Austin Texas tomorrow morning he goes to an employment agency and uh, he sits down and he, they say your name sir Joseph right what would you like he says I want a job okay let's see what we can do for you uh, what is your talent? What, is, what do you do? What is your gift? He said, I dream. <laughs> Say that again. I can predict things through dreams. Right. Your name again? Joseph. <laughs> Thank you very much. We'll be in touch with you, sir. You may feel that your gift is about as important as that. But there came a day, the last person anybody would have dreamed that God would deal with was the king of Egypt, who has a dream. And the people that are paid to interpret dreams can't even touch it. And then somebody remembers 
Oh, Your Majesty, I have some information you might like tonight to know. Uh, there's a prisoner, he's a Hebrew, and he's accused of being a rapist, uh, but he can interpret dreams. And he tells the Pharaoh how he interpreted his. And Pharaoh is so desperate, it doesn't matter whether it's Hebrew or rapist, get him. And so Joseph now, his gift, which nobody would have thought be worth anything, changes the world. And overnight, Joseph becomes prime minister of Egypt, all because you're faithful to what God has given you. And so when you're tempted to be jealous, you don't have an evangelistic preaching gift like Billy Graham, or you don't have the gift of healing like this or that person, or gift of prophecy, and you think, well, what I've got, there's no demand for. You know, that's the, honestly, don't laugh, but it's the way I feel about my own gift. You know what, I, you know what my gift is? I'm a Bible teacher. That's all I do. How, how much demand is there today for a Bible teacher? If I go into employment agency tomorrow, uh, they say to them, uh, Mr. Kendall, what is your gift? Uh, uh, I'm a Bible teacher. Right, okay, thank you very much. <laughs> this is all I do. I would like to be able to do other things, but this is what God has called me to do. You see, when I get to heaven and I stand before Jesus, and you will too, only one thing will matter. Only one thing. Jesus said, he that is faithful in that which is least is faithful also in much. And if I can hear from the lips of Jesus, and, and he can look at me in the eye and say, RT, good. That's all I want. That's all I live for. I don't care about being put on TV or writing books just to think that I'm pleasing him. And that's where I get my joy. That's where I get my satisfaction. And so remember this, the day will come. The only thing that will matter is what God says at the end. All the things said about you by this person or that, won't count. It will be nothing. All right. Living within your anointing. When you go outside your anointing, here's what happens. Fatigue. Burnout. High blood pressure. Breaking down of marriage. All because... You went outside your anointing. You wanted to be able to do this. I don't know if you've ever heard of the book called The Peter Principle, written a number of years ago. A rather original idea. Very interesting. Uh, the man came up with this principle. Namely, every person is promoted to the level of their incompetence. He says everybody is. Now, there are exceptions, but that was his point. He said the person who is scrubbing floors 
is offered to be secretary in the office. And so they thought, that's a better job. I'll take it. But they can't do it. The person who's secretary offered to be the manager. Oh, good, more prestige. But then they break down. They can't, they're not good. They were better off as a secretary. The person who's managers offered to be vice president. He thought, well, that'll look good. Wait till I tell my wife and my friends. I'm now vice president. Except as a nervous breakdown, he can't do it. And the idea is people take jobs because of the more money, more prestige. They're promoted to the level of their incompetence. They promote themselves. They're dying to get that job. Preachers do this. They want the bigger church. And they succeed sometimes, but they can't do it. My point being this, the Holy Spirit will never promote you to the level of your incompetence. So if you can come to terms with the measure of your faith, the limit, your gifting, and just say, well, <laughs> it's kind of humbling, People don't recognize me. Not a lot of money. Not a lot of prestige. But you cope. And that's the thing. Be, become content with the gift you've got because God gave it to you. You see, that way will keep you humble and you can be healthy, have a happy marriage, True, you don't make as much money, and you're not famous. But when you stand before God, you will have as great a reward as anybody. I have a theory. I have a theory. I, I, I'm sure I'm right. I can't prove it, but I'm sure I'm right. <laughs> that the greatest rewards in heaven will be given to people that you never heard of. I sometimes put it like this. It's a fantasy, but bear with me. The judgment seat of Christ has come, and there are millions. King Jesus is on the throne, and all witness. How God's going to do it, that's his problem, not mine. But everybody will see it. And we speculate, I wonder who's going to be called first to receive the reward. Oh, someone says, I bet it's Billy Graham. And others said, oh, I think it will be the Apostle Paul. Now, I, I vote for Moses. And so we're all waiting. Who's going to be first? A shout out a name. Yvette Cutter. <laughs> Yvette Cutter. Anybody here know Yvette Cutter? <laughs> and little Yvette Cutter says, oh, that's my name. So he's calling you. Me? No, no. He's calling you. And she stands before Jesus. And he looks down and says, Yvette, I saw you in Gordon Hospital. 
when you were treated like you were by your husband, how you had the mental illness and you had to have psychiatric help. And I saw you the day that you were crying, but you were praising the Lord. Well done. You see, I'm basing that on a true story. My verger at Westminster Chapel, I said, hi, Fred, where have you been today? He said, I just went to see Yvette Cutter. She's in Gordon Hospital, bipolar illness, very ill, and I just thought I'd go see her. And she was sitting on the bed crying. And I said, how are you doing, Yvette? She said, I'm okay. I've been sitting here praising the Lord because Dr. Kendall said, that when we're low, we just start praising the Lord, and that's what I'm doing. You see, that sort of thing, Jesus sees. Jesus sees. And so, people you've never heard of, that you would never imagine. And so, instead of getting your eyes on what will make you rich or famous or whatever, you come to terms with your anointing. So I would rather be tomorrow's man without the crown just to know that God's hand is on me. So what are the signs of yesterday's man? Well, we know this, that what happened in the case of Saul is that uh, he overestimated himself. He promoted himself to the level of his own competence. See, it all happened in 1 Samuel chapter 14 when uh, we know that uh, King Saul uh, was, uh, uh, was uh, to be, let me find my place. It's when Samuel was waiting for, no, it was, it was Saul waiting, I'm sorry, I didn't know I was going to say this, so I'm not quite prepared, but you'll forgive me. Samuel is waiting, it's, try one more time, this happens when TNR do tweets, we have to start all over, <laughs> did one, I, by the way, I'm on TBN UK three times a week, and we do these things. And I stop in the middle of it. I said, so we've got to start all over again. He said, well, next time, just keep going, and I'll cut it out of the tape. So uh, when you sell these tapes, cut out this last part. <laughs> it's when Saul is waiting for Samuel. Because Samuel must offer the burnt offerings. And Saul says, well, where is Samuel? Well, he's not here yet. Well, he's supposed to be here. And so King Saul says, bring me the burnt offerings. And somebody should have said, well, wait, your majesty. I don't think you're supposed to do that. Well, King Saul says, I'm king, aren't I? Don't tell me what I can do. Bring me the burnt offerings. I'll show you what I can do. And lo and behold, Samuel has come late while Saul is offering the burnt offerings. 
And Samuel says, what have you done? Well, the king says, uh, uh, we waited for you. You were supposed to be here. You weren't here. And I had to get on with it. Oh, says Samuel, you shouldn't have done that. I'm sorry. But you've gone right against scripture. You see, what King Saul did went right again. Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. You see, there's three parts of the law. The Mosaic law is Ten Commandments. It's the moral law. There's the ceremonial law, how the people of God should worship. There's the civil law, how the children of Israel should govern themselves. And there's one little tiny bit in the ceremonial law that's that only the one ordained of God could offer the burnt offerings. Well, you may say, well, that's just one little tiny scripture. Uh, who cares about that? I want you to know that God cares about his word. He's exalted his word above his name, according to Psalm 138, verse 2. And now King Saul just sweeps it under the carpet, says, you weren't here, I offered the burnt offering. Samuel said, you've done very foolishly. You could have been king in your household forever, but now you're going to be removed. God is, is going to look for a man after his own heart. And that's how it happened. And it could be that God has chosen you because someone else promoted themselves to the level of their incompetence. That's what Saul did. He says, I can, I'm king, I can do this. He, he wasn't called to do that. And it goes to show that God takes his word very, very seriously. Let's put it this way. Psalm 138, verse 2. In the Hebrew, it reads, most translations gloss over it. It says, you have magnified your word above all your name. Most translations just say you've magnified your word on your name. The ESV at least has a footnote to say that the Hebrew reads, you magnify your word above all your name. What do you think about that? Do you realize how much God exalts his name? His name? We pray the Lord's Prayer, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. And so it, it cannot be exaggerated how much God exalts his name. But David had an insight. You've magnified your word above all your name. Why? I think I know. God cares more about his integrity than he does his reputation. You say his name is his reputation. His word is his integrity. And that's what matters to God, his integrity. It's impossible for God to lie. And you need to know that this is his word. Someone asked me a couple years ago, R.T., what would you like to accomplish before you die? I said, I can tell you that real quick. I would like to think that I led people to take the Bible more seriously. That would be my goal. If I thought somehow, I don't know how it would happen, if somehow I could get people to go back to the Bible, 
and take it seriously and just believe the Bible. You, you take something like expository preaching. It's perished from the earth. And one reason is that people don't believe the Bible. They come up with ideas. And there are many ministers that only read the Bible when they need a sermon. And they find some book, oh, shall I preach from? Oh, uh, oh that, that'll work this week. I would urge everyone here to take seriously his word. And this is the reason for King Saul's downfall. God actually gave Saul a second chance. It's in 1 Samuel uh, 15 when he, he told uh, Saul to kill the Amalites, Amalekites and all of them. And King Saul said, well, that's not a good idea. We need to save this and save that. And Samuel said, what have you done? Well, I did this because I thought it was a better idea. And Saul blew it again. What matters is your personal devotion to God. What you are as a person, as a man, as a woman. How well do you know your Bible? One prophetic man said to me, he's never read the Bible through. Never had. I know of many prophetic people. They don't know their Bibles at all. I know of one famous, still alive, who claims to hear from God, and a very, very prominent Christian said that he doesn't read his Bible, he just calls his friend, what would God have me to do today? And he gets a prophetic word. They don't bother with this. And it could be the greatest contribution that I can make to you is to ask you, do you know your Bible? Do you read your Bible? See, you've magnified your word above all your name. Right after I became a pastor at Westminster Chapel, Mark Lloyd-Jones did such a favor for me. He introduced me to the Robert Murray McShane Bible reading plan. Uh, you can get it. Go online and get it. And I had always read my Bible a lot, but I never had a real system. I would read one book and then go to another book. And, you know, I was very good at reading my Bible, there's no doubt. But when I got that plan, I started doing it. And I can now tell you that I've read the Bible through uh, probably over 45 times, New Testament 90 times. Psalms 90 times, and I bet there's somebody here you haven't even read it through once. Not going to put you on the spot. I don't want to know. <laughs> but how much do you read your Bible? And the people that hear you, how much do they read their Bible? You see, God's going to anoint you, I think, in proportion to how well you know his word. And by the way, how much do you pray? How much personal 
quiet time do you spend in prayer? Suppose there were flashed on the screen your name and how much time you spend on average alone with God every day. I don't mean working on a sermon, working on a talk. I'm talking about just praying and talking to God. Do you have a prayer list? How much time do you spend? What if I told you I know how much time you spend? I'll tell you this much. I, I do know if you're typical. I choose to believe you're not typical. But if you are typical, I can tell you how much you pray. You want to know? By survey years ago given where thousands of pastors wrote in and admitted this, that, how they prepare sermons, all kinds of questions. And how much do you spend in quiet time every day? Before I give you the answer, listen to these words from Martin Luther's journal. I have a very busy day today. Must not spend two hours, but three in prayer. Most people would say, well, if you've got a busy day today, God understands. Luther said, I have to pray more. Because the more help I get from God, the more I'll get done. John Wesley would never go out into his day without two hours on his knees. Two hours. Wesley, two hours. Luther, two hours. The average church leader in America and Britain, four minutes a day. Ring true? Ring a bell? How much do you pray? I don't want to know. But you wonder why the church is powerless. Why the world thumbs their nose at the church and nobody is bothered by it. Why there's no outrage anymore over anything. You know, as recently as 15 years ago, same-sex marriage was regarded as obnoxious to most Americans. But then a president decided he was for it, and all America followed. See, no outrage. What time did I start preaching? I forgot. Ten till Okay, that's forty minutes, isn't it? That's enough. <laughs> Who said all? <laughs> Raise your hand. Who said okay? You stay behind, I'll preach another hour for you. <laughs> How'd you get her? Heavenly Father, take this word, apply it by your Holy Spirit, I pray in Jesus' name, amen.